Well, each Sunday, we study the scriptures together, and I have begun with this question. So, are you ready? Here we go. Are you ready to study God's Word today? All right. Now, uh, grab a Bible if you brought one and find Colossians 1, C-O-L-O-S, and you... Uh, if you did not bring a Bible, all you need to do is grab your phone right now. We're not going to have any of this on the screen. We're just going to spend time in the Bible. But if you grab your phone or electronic device and on the internet, just type in Colossians 1, C-O-L-O-S-S-I-A-N-S -S -S 1, and it will come up for you. And we're going to go through this passage of Scripture beginning in verse 15. And today we are going to wrestle with this question of Jesus. Who is he really? And this question of Jesus started in a small village called Nazareth in Galilee and spread to the metropolitan city of Jerusalem and around the Roman Empire and throughout the established world right down until this day and time. And it continues to be the greatest question ever because if Jesus is who he says he is, then all of creation, all of humanity, all of your life and mine depend upon our answer to this question, who is Jesus? And so today we're in Colossians 1, verse 15 through 23. And we don't do this every Sunday, but sometimes we do. And so today I want to ask if you would stand for the reading of God's word. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to the New Testament church. And he answers the question, who is Jesus? Colossians 1, verse 15, says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and, and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray today that you would speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, 
And everybody say amen. amen. You may be seated. And so in the time that we have together today, we're going to go back and break this down verse by verse. So I, I hope you will keep your Bible open or keep your phone turned on so that you can look every little bit at the reference to the verse that we will look at at each point. But uh, this was something that uh, I heard a great Wesleyan named Earl Wilson years ago refer to four things that you can draw out from this passage and what it teaches us about Jesus. And the first thing is in verse 15 that it says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Everybody say the image of the invisible God. And so sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that the message of Jesus is just a story about how to be a good person and how to love your neighbor better and how to, to help the poor and how to feed the hungry. And listen, the message of Jesus does include all of those things. And it is important. But folks, Jesus while he taught about ethics and morality, and he taught about how to live a happy and successful life. Listen, if that is all that you know about Jesus, then you are missing the most important part. Because the essence of the message of Jesus is and always has been so much more than that. It is a message not just about how to be a good person, it is a message about how to encounter a great God. See, it is the story about how the creator of the universe, the almighty and powerful God and invisible God, literally broke through into human history at a moment in time and made himself known to humanity. It's about how he revealed himself, about how God came to this earth and put on flesh and said, go ahead, check me out, get to know me, see me, talk to me, touch me. As a baby, he was born in a manger among animals because no one had room that they would give to his mother. He grew up in a small town as a boy in a village that nobody cared about. As he grew up, he went into the family business where he became a, a carpenter or a construction worker for his daily life. And then he never acquired any wealth. He never acquired any official title or position. He never wrote any books. He never fought in any battles. He never won any awards. Many of his closest friends were fishermen, or in a maritime context, we would say lobstermen, <laughs> fishermen. And many of them were prostitutes and working class people who he hung out with every day. At the age of 30, he started going around and preaching and teaching outdoors, but his family tried to stop him because they were embarrassed, and the political religious leaders tried to stop him because they were threatened. And for a time, he became very, very popular as people were attracted to his miracles and his teaching. He drew large crowds until he began to do and say things 
that many people did not like, things that were unpopular, and many of those same folks left and decided not to follow Jesus anymore. Even his own disciples admitted that while he was with them on earth, that he, they had had their doubts. In fact, when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, they ran afraid in fear. And although he was innocent of all the charges, he died a criminal's death, despised and rejected by men, mocked by the crowds who watched, hanging on a cross between two thieves and buried in a borrowed tomb. And that was it. The story was over. It is finished. Or so they thought. <laughs> because a few days later, there was a rumor that started to spread around the city. And people began to talk. Is it possible this story that Jesus is no longer dead? Even the Roman government had to confess the truth that the tomb was empty. And so now, all of a sudden, these disciples who only days before had been afraid, frightened, hiding in a room, scared for their lives, but now, all of a sudden, they are out on the streets declaring confidently this message of hope. They said, we have seen him with our own eyes, that, that Jesus is risen, that sin has been conquered, that death has been defeated, and Jesus has overcome. That is why we're here today. But, but, but put yourself in their position, in fact, the same position that many people are in in our culture today. They accused the disciples of being drunk. They, the, the story was too ridiculous to even believe. No one would give it a second thought, or would they? You see, at first, the whole Roman Empire laughed because it seemed so hard to believe. But the story continued to spread. All throughout the Roman world, people began asking this question, who is this Jesus? And as we continue now to this day, 2,000 years later, there is still something different about his name. There is still something special that, that even critics and skeptics, atheists and agnostics, have to admit that there is something different about Jesus. He doesn't fit into any of our categories. Why? Because verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And with your Bible open or your phone still on, look now at verse 16, Colossians 1, verse 16. The next verse says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. And so number two, in Christ we find the power of God. From the Garden of Eden, back in the beginning with Adam and Eve, all the way throughout ancient human history, Satan again and again and again tried to destroy the Jewish people, the Hebrew people from which Jesus would be born. And in the 2,000 years since, 
Every attempt to destroy the message of Jesus has failed. Ralph Waldo Emerson says that, that his name is not so much written as it is plowed into human history. In 1882, German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche pronounced, God is dead. In the early 1900s, many leading thinkers, George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells, proclaimed and predicted that the 20th century would finally bring to a close history's religious phase. Julian Huxley, in 1957, wrote that, that soon humans would no longer have any need for some kind of God. But look around and tell me, where are those God-is-dead skeptics today? And yet 2,000 years later, he is alive and well in the hearts of believers all around the world. After 2,000 years, we still baptize in his name. When people die and we bury them, it is beneath his cross that we declare their blessing. It is in his word that we seek our comfort. And when anyone believes in his name, the chains of bondage are broken. He frees from destructive habits. He puts value into wasted lives. He sets the free, those who have been in chains. He, he heals the sick, the blind can see. He gives strength to the brokenhearted. He gives hope to the downcast. And listen, let me tell you, he has taken what little bit I have to offer him because I ain't nothing special. I heard an amen. I'm not so sure if that's... <laughs> Is that was that an encouragement? I, I'm not... But it's true. Those of you who know me, I am nothing special. And yet he has taken what little bit I have to offer him, and he has multiplied it tenfold over what I could ever do on my own because Christ releases a power that only God can release. And so let's continue with verse 18. It says he is the head of the body, the church, because the church is called in the New Testament the body of Christ. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all fullness dwell in him. And so number three, in Christ we find the identity of God. Now what do we learn about God from Jesus. What we see is this amazing balance where on the one hand, Jesus was the meekest and most humble of men, and yet he claimed to be the King of kings and the Lord of all lords. He was so powerful that evil spirits fleed and shrieked at the sound of his name. But he was so gentle that children came and played at his feet. He made himself a servant to all, washing the disciples' feet. And yet when he walked into the temple, the holy fire in his eyes caused, caused the cheaters and the liars to run in fear. He spoke of invisible kingdoms and spiritual 
supernatural realities. And yet he had a greater grip on reality and the situation of our human condition greater than any person who has ever lived. He offered to save anyone who would receive him. And yet in order to save us, he chose not to save himself. You see, the claims that Jesus made were so unlike any other religious teacher. Who else claimed to be God? Not Buddha, not Confucius or Socrates. What happens is all of those religious teachers pointed people to their teachings, not to their person, because they knew that if anyone to, were to inspect them personally, they would always find some fault. And so the, these great teachers throughout history pointed people to their teachings rather than to their person. But Jesus was unique. That, that he chose to, that somehow in ways that, that was unlike anyone else, he, he put himself at the very center of his message. And it was almost as if he was less concerned about teaching your mind and more concerned about getting into your heart. He never said, oh, folks, I have found the answer to life. He said, oh, no, 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 I am the answer. He never said, let me show you the way. He said, I am the way. He didn't say, let me give you some insight for life. He said, I am the life. He did not say, let me teach you the truth. He said, I am the truth. And as crazy as it made them, as upset as they were, they could not refute his claims. Even Pontius Pilate, the governor, the judge who made the decision for Jesus to be crucified, admitted that with Jesus it was innocent blood that was being shed. You see, we talk about being innocent ourselves. You'll hear on the news, oh, they were so innocent. No, they weren't. None of us are innocent. We're not nearly as good as we pretend to be, but Jesus was. Back into our passage, look at verse 19 and into verse 20. It says, for God was pleased to have all fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What this is referring to is the biblical truth that the punishment for sin is death. And so, in order for us to be reconciled to the Father, you know what reconciliation means. It's when a relationship has been broken, and then you make that relationship right. There's forgiveness and healing and restoration that takes place in the relationship. That's called reconciliation. And it says right here that he reconciles us with God by making peace. So that's number four. In Christ, we find the peace of God. And it doesn't just happen by accident. See, whether you realize it or not, your entire life, God has been seeking you out and speaking to you. And something amazing happens Whenever someone finally makes the decision that they will try to figure out who Jesus is, there's this amazing thing ha that, that happens that when you start to explore him intellectually, all of a sudden, he starts speaking back to you. 
That, that, that when you explore him theologically, he begins to speak to you spiritually. You explore him scientifically, and he speaks to you morally. You start to study this, this historic figure, and you start to, to sense that this case study is studying you. You begin to look for his secrets, and you find that he already knows your secrets. You see what you can find in Christ, and sooner or later, God in Christ finds you. One of my favorite authors of all time is the great C.S. Lewis. He's the author of the Chronicles of Narnia and a great philosopher in the 1940s and 1950s who lived in England. And many have heard of C.S. Lewis, but very few know the story of his wife, Joy. Joy Lewis uh, was born and raised a Jew. Her mother was a somewhat devout Jew, but her father was an atheist. She grew up in New York City and then went to Hunter College. And in the year 1930, she publicly declared herself an atheist and a full-blown Marxist and devoted her life to the cause of communism. When she became the editor of the New York City publication of the Communist Party, she gave herself passionately to that cause. She fell in love with a man who they shared many things in common. She, uh, he was a writer as well, and so they married. They had two boys. But it turns out that her husband was not a good person. He was undependable, an alcoholic, and failing as a writer. And so one morning, she got a call at their home in New York City. And she picked up the phone, and her husband was on the other end of the line. And he called, sounding frantic, and he said, I've just called to tell you that I'm losing my mind. I'm absolutely going crazy. And he hung up the phone. And so worried and panicked, she ran all around the city trying to find him in the places that she figured he might be all throughout the rest of that day and into that night. And finally, in the middle of the night, she came to the realization that, that he was probably gone for good. Now, he did show up later and announced that he planned to marry her cousin. So he was a real winner, as you can see. And so they divorced, and Joy found herself in a rural area just north of New York City, out in the country in an empty house with two boys, a devoted atheist, a passionate communist. She said, I was desperate. She said, I had never been desperate before. She had lived her life arrogant, intelligent, aggressive, brilliant, She'd been able to handle anything that life threw at her until now. She said, my life was coming apart and I didn't know where to turn. She said, let me read to you, I was terrified and desolate. Where does an atheist turn? I had nowhere to turn. But suddenly I became aware that when I had nowhere to turn, somebody had turned to me. And I was not alone. I could not conceive who or what he was, but I knew he was there. 
She said, I, I shared this with my communist friends, and they said, well, that's the way the mind works when you get desperate. The human mind creates some kind of symbol of hope, and you have talked yourself into that. She said, oh no, I don't know what it, that it lasted more than five seconds or so, but for those five seconds, I knew that I was not alone. She said, regardless of what my friends said, I had only one mission in life, and that was to find out who this was. And so I took the writings of Lenin and began to read them, devouring them to see what the father of communism could teach me about the one who had come to me. And she said, I found that it was sterile. She said, after that, I turned to my own people's writings, Jewish literature, and it was a little more comforting. But then somebody gave me a New Testament. And I began to read, and I found out not only who he was, I found out what his name was, that his name was Jesus. And when I found out who he was and what his name was, my life was radically transformed. And the Bible says that, that long before you even began to seek for Jesus, he was already seeking for you. He was already speaking into your life, pursuing you, bringing comfort in your darkest hours. And one day you realize, this is it. Jesus is what I have been searching for. But then in that moment, you come to a realization that there is a problem. There is some kind of barrier between him and me. And maybe you're not sure exactly what it is, but you realize that somehow you are out of gear, not just with yourself, not just with your, your inner being, not just with your spirituality or, or the force of the universe, but that somehow you are out of gear with the God of the universe himself. And you realize that there is something wrong inside, that I need to get honest with myself. I need to quit pretending. I need to stop blaming everybody else for all of my problems. And I need to admit that I need help, that I need someone to fix the wrongness in my life and make me right. I need forgiveness, and only God can forgive. I need cleansing, and only God can make me clean. And yet this thing that only God can do, Jesus does. You see, in Scripture, Jesus did it for people again and again, that whenever someone would come and bow at the feet of Jesus, all of a sudden they would come to this realization that now they were at peace with God. And God was at peace with them. In fact, that is, what, that is what angered the religious leaders and the political establishment the most. The Pharisees said, no one can forgive sin but God alone, and yet for all who have received him, God has forgiven us through Jesus. It's true, only God can open the gates to heaven. But Jesus has opened the gates. It's true that, that only, only God can break the chains of our bondage. 
But in Christ, the chains can be broken. It's true that only God can redeem. And yet I tell you today that I have been bought with a price. He has redeemed me through his death on the cross. And through his resurrection, I have found spiritual life. I have found new life. I have found abundant life. I have found fulfilling life. I have found joyful life. Anybody else here found that kind of life today? But who is this Jesus to you? You see, keep this in mind. He is who he is, whether I think it or not. You see, if I were to decide that oxygen does not exist simply because I cannot see it, I can't taste it, I can't touch it, does that make oxygen any less real? Does that make it any less necessary for my life? If my body decides to reject oxygen because it says, well, surely oxygen is not the only way to breathe, there must be some other way, then I will die. And so the greatest question is not just who is Jesus, the most important question is, who is Jesus to you? Listen, we are so glad you're here today. I hope what you hear today is encouragement and blessing, but I also hope you hear today the importance of this question. Because how we answer this question is the trajectory of our eternity. Would you stand? And if you could just right now, just close your eyes or kind of look down so that you're not looking around the room, but just so that you can focus between you and God without any distractions. Let him speak to you today like he did to Joy Lewis, like he has to me and so many people here today. Let him speak comfort into your heart. Just take a moment and listen. 